Mr. Kaline, you have been with the Tigers since June of 1953. I suppose there's a good reason why you were called Mr. Tiger. Uh, your current role with the ball club, you are the special assistant to the president, Dave Dombrowski. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role is right now with the ball club? Well, first of all, I was, uh, I was in the broadcast booth as an analyst with George Kell for 22 years, and then when my friend George, uh, uh, Mike Gillies bought the ball club, he asked me if I would move into the front office and help him out and give my opinion on different situations. And then a short period after that, Dave Dombrowski joined the organization, and, uh, and I, I have, I've been working with Dave. And I sit in on most of all the meetings, uh, major league meetings, uh, of course, I don't know everybody in, in the other minor leagues uh, for other teams, so I can't really make any comments on those guys. But I, I sit in on the major league meetings about uh, what our needs are, what uh, what we should do, and then I just give my opinion, and then uh, and then they they do what they want with it. <laughs> <laughs> Your career is so vast, it's hard to even know exactly where to start. 22 years, of course, a Hall of Famer. I'd love to talk to you a little bit, Mr. Kaline, about your second full season in the major leagues. 1955, uh, you're the youngest ever batting champion in the history of the game. You're only 20 years old. You hit 340. It was your first all-star selection of 15 different times for the Midsummer Classic. Let's keep in mind, you're 20 years old at the time. The all-star roster that year had the names of Nellie Fox... Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, Red Shane Deanst, Stan the Man Musial, a couple of heroes of yours, Willie Mays, Ernie Banks. You're a kid. What was it like for you at County Stadium for that first All-Star game? I tell you what, I was so nervous uh, sitting in that locker room uh, with my favorite players. Uh, of course, uh, Ted Williams was one of my favorites, and Mantle was, was the star at that time in, in all of baseball. And uh, and I, I was just I, – I wish I were uh, more of a veteran because I wanted to be able to go over and talk to him and maybe get some autographs, <laughs> have my picture taken with him. But I was so shy and nervous that I just stayed away and just just wanted, wanted to play the game is all. It's pretty incredible when you think about where you were that young in your career and especially when you consider the fact that you went straight from an 18-year-old high schooler to the major leagues, a bonus baby. How difficult was that for you to make that transition? It was very hard. Uh, you know, uh, I joined the team in Philadelphia, Philadelphia Athletics at the time, and uh, it was very hard. Uh, I was not uh, very welcomed by the players, obviously, because here's an 18-year-old kid out of high school, and I'm taking a veteran player's job. Uh, I had to stay in the big leagues for two years because I was a bonus player. I got over, I got $15,000 bonus. Uh, so I had to stay in the big leagues two years. And, but the players did not want anything to do with me. I was pretty much on my own. I had to find my way around. And, but the one thing I found out as soon as I put my uniform on, and I could shag balls and fly balls and catch the ball like anybody on, on, their, on our team at that time. I knew I could play the outfield. Now, hitting – Different thing, 18-year-olds coming out of high school now facing major league pitchers. So uh, that was something I really had to work on, and I did. Uh, but fortunately for me, I was always the guy that put the ball in play, even though it wasn't for power. Uh, but I, uh, not too many guys just went right through me. I mean, I could put the ball in play, and, and even though it wasn't a hard-hit ball all the time, but at least I didn't strike out all the time. That's oh, a good point. You bring up that all-star season, that first one we were talking about. You had – somewhere around 80 walks and only 50-some strikeouts, and you hit 340. You just don't see numbers like that anymore today. And 
I'm glad, Mr. Kaline, you brought up the outfield. Ten gold gloves, and people remember your powerful arm and, of course, your ability to cover the field as well. Where did that develop for you over the course of your career, before shagging fly balls maybe? You know, I, I could always, uh, I could always uh, judge the ball, run the ball down, and always, for whatever reason, I always had a very strong, accurate arm. With, and the, I may not have had the strongest arm, but I would put my name next to the most accurate thrower that I've ever seen. I, I always threw the ball. I never threw the ball that far offline. Like, I, like you see today, sometimes balls thrown 20, 30 feet offline. I never threw the ball that far. And every once in a while, I might short hop the catcher or the third baseman and, and, and not give him a fair, fair hop. But uh, I was always very accurate, and I took very, uh, great pride in that. And that's something I don't think major league outfielders do today, take great pride in what they do in the outfield. And which was more satisfying, a, a maybe a late-inning home run or pegging a runner out at home plate from right field? Well, they're both uh, equally uh, important. Uh, the one thing about making a good play that I might be helping a, a pitcher uh, save his job. Uh, hitting a home run, uh, yeah, that's always great to, uh, to have a, a walk-off home run. And, uh, but I took pride in my outfield because I knew that that pitcher out there was trying to fight for a job. And uh, if I could help save a run or get out of an inning, it might help him stay in the big leagues. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about 1968 and the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals. It was an incredible World Series. It went seven games, and the Cardinals really had the upper hand early in that series. They won three of the first four, and the margin of victory was pretty extreme, it seems like, for each one of those Redbird wins. But bottom of the seventh, game five, you're at the plate. Tigers are down by a run, a two-run single from you, which gives the Tigers the lead. The Tigers would go on to win game six, and, of course, win game seven to win the World Series. Can you, can you take us back to inside the batter's box, what that moment was like for you? Yeah, well, it was a great. I was, I was very happy to be the guy up at the plate because I never was uh, afraid to fail. I always wanted the opportunity. And uh, if I failed, it wasn't because I wasn't trying. But I, I just wanted the opportunity. And uh, I was in there against uh, Joe Horner, who was a left-handed pitcher. And I knew all about him. I knew that his best pitch was, a, was turning the ball over, keeping the ball down and away from a right-hander. And even though it would have been nice to be able to hit a home run, but I knew that my best chance was to base it up the middle, driving a run. And uh, that's what I tried to do. I, I anticipated that he was going to try to get me out with his best pitch. And uh, so I looked for his best pitch and was able to get a base hit to right center field to drive in the run. And uh, fortunately for us, uh, we, we got ahead there and we stayed ahead from there on out. So now that we've established all this and the fact that you hit nearly 380 in those seven games in the World Series, a couple of home runs, eight RBIs, can we talk about game one? <laughs> yeah, sure. Bob Gibson turned in an absolutely historic performance. Five hits. You had one of them. A complete game shutout from another Hall of Famer and a World Series record. 17 strikeouts in an absolutely dominating performance. What do you remember about Bob Gibson in game one of the 1968 World Series? He's the toughest SOB I've ever <laughs> faced. That's what, that's what I'm going to remember about it. But uh, he, he was just a, just a dynamite. And I'm glad I didn't have to face him for very much in my career because uh, he, he was just one of the great guys. He was a mean son of a gun on the mound. Uh, he wasn't afraid to brush you back. Uh, and, uh, but for that game, I mean, I, it, was, it was just wonderful, even though we, he beat us, to see somebody with that much talent and that much desire to be great, uh, and uh, he absolutely was. So 
Uh, again, uh, I, I've got to be very good friends with Bob now that we're in the Hall of Fame, and, and I always keep saying that, Bob, how come you're always so mean on the mound and you want to knock guys down? He says, well, you know, I don't mind them hitting balls when I throw a pitch inside, but when they lean out over the plate and hit that ball low outside and it hits one, that, that makes me mad, and the next time I face them, I always knock them down. Was Bob Gibson the most intimidating pitcher that you faced in your 22-year career? I would say he was, uh, he's up there pretty close to it. Uh, yeah, I would say he was, he was very intimidating. But Bob always says that, you know, he said, everybody says, I'm staring at him all the time. He said, they didn't realize I couldn't see the signs. So I was staring at, <laughs> I was staring at the catcher with a mean growl on my face, but I couldn't see the signs from the catcher, and the hitters all thought I was uh, staring at them. <laughs> That's incredible. We would, ne- we would never know that. Your 3,000th hit came in your hometown of Baltimore, a double into the corner in right field. What was that moment like for you when you rounded into second base, you stood up, and your, your parents were there at yeah. the ball game, and what was that moment like? Well, it was, it was great. You know, I, I had asked the, our general manager uh, if, if they wanted me to wait to uh, get it in Detroit, and they said, no, you go out and get it uh, whenever you can uh, because of Roberto Clemente had, uh, you know, got his last one, and unfortunately he, he you know he got hit terrible accident and was killed uh but uh so the next best thing was in baltimore my hometown i had a, certainly my mom and dad and some family members there and a lot of my my high school buddies and stuff who were all at the games to watch the game so if, if we have a little bit of time i'll tell you a little story about dave mcdally who was uh the pitcher i got the base hit off of dave called me in spring training and says, Al, he says that my brother and I are trying to get a Ford dealership in Idaho, someplace where he, he lived in the offseason. Do I know Lee Iacocca? I said, yeah, Lee's a very good friend of mine, good friend of mine. He says, and so anyhow, he says, we're trying to get a Ford dealership. So anyhow, I called Mr. Iacocca, and I said, uh, Dave McNally. He says, okay, I'll have somebody call Dave. And make a long story short, they were able to get the Ford dealership in the next little town. So Dave calls me. Once the season started, he says, Al, he says, I want to thank you for getting the Ford dealership. And I, I dreamt that you got your 3,000 hit off of me. Sure enough, in September, I got my base hit off of Dave McNally, who I wore out anyhow because <laughs> he was left-handed, and I got a double down the right field line. That's incredible. What, do you remember what your, your first conversation was like with him once it happened? Because that's amazing that he had the premonition that it would happen that way. No, I actually, I never, I never talked to him after that. I mean, he, he just had called me on the phone and, and thanked me for helping me get the Ford dealership and uh, that he dreamt that uh, I would get the, uh, the base hit off of him. And I had forgot all about it. And then once I got over to the, uh, the locker room after the game, he called me and says, I told you you were going <laughs> to So anyhow, it was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was very nice of him, yeah. Now, going back to an earlier comment, that was awfully thoughtful of you to ask the Tigers if they wanted you to wait. Had they had said yes, that they wanted you to wait till the Tigers got back home, do you have any idea what you would have done in the batter's box for however many more at-bats you would have had sitting on 2,099 hits? Yeah, you know, it was, it was uh, uh, at least four or five games before we would have gotten back to the Detroit for, uh, uh, you know, for a chance to get the uh, 3,000 hit. But, again, uh, you know, I don't know what I would have done. I, certainly I wouldn't have gone to the plate and tried to make it out because <laughs> uh, there's only one time I was glad to ever make it out in my life, and that was the first time I was called a pinch hit when I was 18 years old, first game in the major leagues, and uh, Freddie Hutchinson, our manager, didn't even know my name. He says, hey, kid, grab a bat. It was the eighth inning, and, of course, I didn't have a bat. It was much too heavy for me, 
and I pinched hit and hit the first pitch to center field for an out, and I was the only time I was ever happy to make an out. <laughs> well, well, we'll wrap up from going from your first ever major league at bat to 1980 in Cooperstown, New York, when you're inducted into the Hall of Fame. And two of the first names that you mentioned in your speech were two players that you called inspirations to you to want to be a major leaguer, Ted Williams and Stan the Man Musial. Can you tell us what it was about each one of those players growing up that you admired so much? Well, Stan Musial was always my, my all-time, all-around favorite player because uh, he, he was sort of a guy I try to model myself after, uh, hitting the ball to all fields, able to run a little bit. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, Ted was always considered the, the greatest hitter of all time, and everybody would try to uh, emulate, uh, be a hitter like Ted Williams. I got to be very friendly with Ted Williams. He liked me a lot, and we've had great conversations over, uh, during our careers and while he was alive. And uh, but uh, they 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 were two uh, guys that I idolized. Uh, I really I really loved Ted Williams not only for for his baseball skills, but for the type of man he was on and off the field. Uh, he he was really my all time idol. So you talk about both those players, and as we talked about earlier, they're in the first All-Star game you appear in. Of course, Williams is on the same side as you in the same clubhouse. Stan Musial is on the National League side. Did you say anything to Stan Musial or to Ted Williams in that first All-Star game? I don't remember saying anything to anybody, to be honest with you. I was too, too nervous, but I was, on, I, did, uh, I was the leading vote-getter that year because I was leading the league. And uh, I, w- I played the whole game, and Stan Musial hit a home run and extra innings to beat us in Milwaukee. So I remember that part of it. And if you ever see the highlights of Stan Musial hitting a home run, I'm that little outfielder going to the fence <laughs> when the ball's over. And so, uh, uh, no, I, w- I you know, I, I wish that, like, like I said, I wish I was a more of a veteran, experienced guy. But being uh, uh, just 20 years old and, uh, and, and being in an all-star game with all these great, great, great players, I wish I'd have had – <laughs> been able to say more and talked a little bit, but I, I was always thought if you're young and a rookie, sort of like a rookie, keep your mouth shut and, and go play baseball. Mr. Kaline, this has been an absolutely incredible experience. Thank you so much for all the time and all the tremendous stories. This has been a real honor. Thank you so much. Oh, this is great. Thanks for asking me, and uh, I've been blessed to be uh, not only a fairly good baseball player, but be in this great game for a long time.